This is Shamita, and we're bringing you a bonus episode of Apple News Today. Our colleagues over at Apple TV Plus have just launched a new investigative podcast called The Line. In 2018, a group of Navy SEALs broke ranks and accused their chief, Eddie Gallagher, of murder, pulling them all into the biggest war crimes trial in a generation. Did a Navy SEAL cross the line in Iraq? We're sharing the first episode with you now. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen and subscribe to The Line on Apple Podcasts. Hey there, before we start, just know that this episode contains descriptions of violence in war and a reference to suicide. Thanks for listening. Episode one, we have a problem. All right. Send more? Yeah. All right, we're doing impact. Just send these. We're on. Send them. When Alpha Platoon of SEAL Team 7 found themselves in Mosul, Iraq in 2017, in the middle of one of the most kinetic battles in a decade, they considered themselves lucky as hell. This is them shooting mortars at a target in the city. The mission? ISIS had occupied Mosul for the past two years, holding much of the city hostage, and the SEALs were here to help Iraqi forces clear ISIS out. Fuck yeah. Block by block. All right. Day one, heading into Mosul. Master Craig, <laughs> Tom, Bobby on the gun. See if we can do some work. For a fighting force known for being secretive, you would be amazed at how much of it they record on their personal GoPros that they attach to their helmets, like teenagers shooting their own skate videos in the Best Buy parking lot. This is where we're gonna live tonight. That building is to be ISIS headquarters. And you can see it in these videos. After 18 months of training for this one mission, these SEALs have become close. And that closeness is a big part of what makes them work so well as a team. But that bond between them, it would begin to break down. A fracture that grew from one day, from one moment in particular. May 3rd, 2017. The SEALs order an airstrike on a building in Old West Mosul where several ISIS fighters are hiding out. The building is destroyed. Five ISIS guys are killed, but the rest escape. And after a firefight, Iraqi forces capture a lone ISIS fighter who was left behind. This is the voice of that fighter, lying in rubble, wounded, but alive. An Iraqi war reporter had been there on the scene and he questions the fighter. The first thing you notice is how young this fighter seems, with a beginner's mustache and the stretched out limbs of a growth spurt only halfway done. He is a kid. And now, in the hands of the Iraqi army, a prisoner. Reporter, why did you work with them? Did they force you or was it your choice? ISIS fighter, my father used to hit me and he told me not to join them. Then why did you go? Because they said it would be a good job. So for the good job, yes, Amo. That's Arabic for uncle. Yes, uncle. Then the reporter moves on to other matters of war, not realizing just how newsworthy this kid was about to become. 
The prisoner is injured, a wound to the leg and possibly more. And so the Iraqis pick him up and they drive him a little farther back from the front line to the seals of Al-Batun, who have been working with the Iraqis to clear Mosul. A SEAL helmet cam captures this scene as the Iraqis pull up with a wounded fighter draped over the hood of the Humvee, like a deer. Then someone cuts through the crowd that is already forming. Wearing dusty desert camo and about 50 pounds of gear, Chief Eddie Gallagher. Gallagher is the top enlisted guy in the platoon. Intense and aggressive. Eddie's about to put him out, He's also a trained medic. Although, along with wearing the standard pack of medical supplies on the back of his belt, he had taken to wearing a hunting knife and a leather sheath there as well. Gallagher approaches the prisoner on the ground. He kneels over him and rips open the kid's pant leg. The kid screams and raises up. Gallagher pushes him down. Then, the video stops. That's the end of it. Leaving us stuck on a final image. A freeze frame. A young prisoner, unarmed and wounded, the last known image of him alive. And kneeling over him, Chief Eddie Gallagher, a decorated Navy SEAL, about to do something or not do something, depending on who you believe, that would brand him to many as a war criminal. We'll keep coming back to this freeze frame because it's the catalyst for this war story about where the line is between right and wrong in war. And when that line becomes blurry, What happens to the hearts and souls of the warriors fighting? Or to the rest of us, the ones who send them out there to fight in the first place? I'm Dan Taberski, and this is The Line. There are three types of people in this world. Sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. That's the beginning of a parable that the Navy SEALs I've talked to over the past year like to toss around to explain how they see themselves and their place in the world. The sheep are me, and probably you, just regular people living our lives. The wolves, they are the bad people, the evil people, who want nothing more than to kill us sheep. And then there are the sheepdogs. The sheepdogs like to kill too, But they like to kill wolves to protect the sheep. The sheepdogs are a little bit scary. They're a little bit aggro, but they're honorable and necessary. You know, there's a lot of guys out there like, oh, I'm a sheepdog, I'm a sheepdog, I'm a sheepdog. I'm like, I'm not. This is Dan. Dan was a SEAL for 11 years, and he has got a slight amendment to that parable. You know, basically a sheepdog protects sheep, and he hangs out with sheep, and he looks like sheep, and he waits to get attacked. Fuck that. I'm a fucking lion. I'm hunting wolves. I'm not waiting for wolves to hunt me. I'm looking for that motherfucker and I'm daring him. Come down this hill. As a matter of fact, I'm coming to the hill to you, right? And every now and then I'll eat a sheepdog and I'll eat a fucking lamb if it gets in my way. Wow. That's been my mentality. I'm I'm trying to tone it down. (laughs) Dan is absolutely terrifying and also kind of a good hang which is how I would describe a lot of the SEALs I've met over the past year. If you're looking for intensity, go find yourself a SEAL. There's only around 2,500 SEALs. It's about as many kids as there were in my high school, and at least as much drama as we're going to come to see. There's a SEAL Team 1, a SEAL Team 2, 3, all the way through 10, with SEAL Team 6 being the most elite of the elite. 
Although there's no SEAL Team 9 for some reason, or at least the Navy has never acknowledged the existence of one. What the SEALs do often seems to be described in the negative. The Navy SEALs are unconventional forces. They engage in irregular warfare. They are built to be autonomous, have a small footprint, and make things happen that other forces can't. They call it direct action. This operation has been in the planning stages for more than eight months. And if you're familiar with any of their work, it is probably their greatest hits. Like killing Osama bin Laden in 2011. Helicopters carried about 25 Navy SEALs into the compound. Inside, bin Laden and his men engaged in a firefight. Bin Laden was killed by a shot. To or the in head. 2009, when SEAL snipers saved a container ship captain being held hostage by Somali pirates. Cargo ship captain Richard Phillips is safe and unhurt tonight after U.S. Navy SEAL snipers in the deck of a warship. Three pirates, three bullets to the head, and Tom Hanks playing Captain Phillips in the movie version to boot. But besides the one or two sexy stories that are deemed major motion picture worthy to show heroes being heroes, the SEAL teams do all of it in secret. Covert action. We get just the outlines, the bare minimum. But even that. Last year, the Department of Defense reported that U.S. special operations are active in 141 countries. A whole world of warfare. We're left to just guess at. So my granddad was Navy, my dad was Navy, and then I want to be Navy, but I want to do, like, the best. This is Kevin. He served on SEAL Team 4. So I did three deployments with the SEAL teams, and I did, like, 10 or 15 more with the other government agencies, so. Other government agencies. Yeah. Should we just leave it at that? Or? Yeah. We can not, it you mean the Department of Education? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kevin began his SEAL training at age 17. You need special dispensation to join up so young, but he was ready. He says he always was. I just kind of like always felt that that was my purpose, you know, like to be a warrior and to kind of protect people and just fuck up bad guys. That's what I wanted to do. You know, there's evil in the world and there's people that need to kind of be between the good people and the bad people, you know what I mean? So there's got to be a barrier between the good people and the bad people. I think that's what the fighters are. If you're between the good people and the bad people, what are you? I feel like you're a little bit good, you're a little bit bad. You know what I mean? Trying to get a group that calls themselves the quiet professionals to not be quiet is no easy task. We talked to over 50 current and former SEALs and other special operators for this project. I went to SEAL Team 2. Team 5. SEAL Team 1. Team 10. And uh, SEAL Team 7. For SEALs not directly involved in this case, we're going to use first names only, and sometimes pseudonyms to protect their anonymity. We began talking to SEALs to understand the story of Alpha Platoon from Team 7 and Chief Gallagher in that freeze frame. But it became clear pretty quickly that the story of what happened in Alpha Platoon is the story of the SEALs writ large. How working on the edges, the gray areas, between a little bit good and a little bit bad can be perilous. Setting up a situation in which you may find yourself on the wrong side of that line. Or, after the fact, realizing that the line may never have been there at all. It's become a tradition at the teams. At the end of deployment, to take all that GoPro footage that the SEALs shot and cut it together in a platoon video, like a video yearbook, just for them. This is the video Alpha Platoon made at the end of their mission to Mosul. And this 
It's a soundtrack they chose. God help us all. A couple things to glean from this video. The guys in the platoon, they gave each other nicknames like Stinky Steve and the Firestarter. Also, they are very big on mooning the camera, which I am ashamed to say makes me laugh every time. But the biggest takeaway, whatever you think of the war and why we are even there fighting, what these guys actually did in Mosul is incredible. To actually see it, treating wounded Iraqis with a calm hand and rescuing each other from sticky situations, acts of real valor and heroism. They experienced something truly amazing together. So no surprise that when the deployment was over and they returned to the States, it doesn't take long for the group texting to start. Tolbert, anyone need any help with anything today? Vrenz, washing my back? Tolbert, we're going to need all afternoon to get that in. This goes on for months. Poop jokes galore, and the word fag kicked back and forth like a hacky sack. But noticeably not on the thread, their chief, Eddie Gallagher. And all those dumb jokes belie the nervousness that creeps in about the uncomfortable topic that these SEALs keep coming back to. Tolbert, I know some of y'all just got back and don't want to hear this, but I guess Eddie is out for blood. We need to talk to someone ASAP. Arrington, what have you heard and who have you heard it from? A smaller group of them, seven SEALs, breaks off into a separate thread that they call the sewing circle. As a goof, that's what Gallagher used to call them for being gossipy. And it's here where they hash out how they are going to do what it is they are about to do. Tolbert, but seriously, I think Monday this has to happen. Delay, I agree. Arrington, in. They're about to take a massive risk. Gallagher was seen as a hero. He's up for medals. And Mosul was considered a huge success. And some of these guys are trying to land a spot now on SEAL Team 6, the best of the best. Being labeled snitches would be like taking a lighter to all of it. Miller, and what do we do when Master Chief says, get the fuck out of my office? Arrington, we'll go to the next person. They know that the blowback is going to be severe. But in spring of 2018, seven months after they returned from Mosul, they do it anyway. All right, so today's the 23rd of May. It's about 1735. Um, I'm here with... Here's my ID, so you know, I am a special agent with NCIS. I'm Joe Warpinski. These are recordings of the initial interviews they gave to NCIS in a tiny white interrogation room, the kind where nothing pleasant ever happens. What this might be about, and what's your guess? I would probably guess Chief Bay Officer Gallagher. That's correct. And despite being some of the toughest men on the planet, their resolve seems shaky. This could really fuck up. Like, it could be skewed and make, like, everybody look like a bunch of rats. Well aware of the shitstorm, an official investigation into a fellow SEAL would unleash. I'm nervous, you know, because I just don't, I don't know anything about this stuff. And uh, it's, there's a lot at stake. Together, these SEALs and their statements to the investigators, they tell a story about a deployment where they expected to see a lot of action and a chief they were psyched to work for. I mean, everybody was talking about like, oh, you have Chief Gallagher? Like, he's great. He's a physical stud. You know, he's a good performer. Uh, he's aggressive. 
I, I loved him. Like he was my mentor. He's a legend. Great leader, great reputation. Everyone knows him like a guy you can fall back on. And he made an awesome platoon of like really, really solid stand-up guys that were really, really good at their jobs. Um, definitely a family man and was real good to us guys and was pretty well respected before deployment. Um, and then I noticed a change kind of right as we got uh, in country. Once in Mosul, that's when many of them say that they watched Gallagher become a different person. He started like uh, distancing himself from the platoon. He spent a lot of his time in his room playing, watching movies and playing video games after we get back from ops. What, what type of performance issues? Uh, I mean, just a severe decline in professionalism. He was going around through other guys' stuff while we were gone, and he'd go and ruffle through and take like stuff out of our care packages and stuff. He was just very aggressive, um, unpredictable. Um, I, it was just easier for me to steer clear. If I didn't need to talk to him, I wasn't going to talk to him. Okay. 100% his priority was to just get up and snipe. This is SO1 Corey Scott. SO stands for a special operator. SO1 Scott describes Gallagher as becoming interested in pretty much one thing above all else, racking up kills. It kind of turned into the platoon being Eddie's personal, like, sniper escort to get in from place to place so he could try to do the sniper ops. And you'd make comments that he was, like, okay with killing women and kids, things like that perfectly okay with killing anybody that was moving. He would sit on his sniper rifle all day long, just like, taking shots. This is SO1 Delay, also a sniper. In fact, it was unusual for a chief to be on a sniper rifle at all, so much so that he hadn't been issued one. He would use other SEALs' weapons to snipe with. Delay accuses Gallagher of scratching his itch to kill with tactics that were dangerous and irresponsible. Just a, a case study for what not to do. For example, returning over and over to the same sniper position, making them all easy targets for ISIS. We would constantly like go to him to be like, hey, this is a bad idea to go back to the same building. Eddie said, we're going back. Okay. Well, then a uh, SPG-9 missile hits that sniper hide, and it's like, okay, let's don't go back. Well, we're going to go back. I spoke to someone in special operations who referred to combat as the controlled management of violence. But the platoon chief these SEALs described to NCIS is one that seems to be losing that control. You know, we're trained to kill bad guys. It's easy to kill people. It's not hard at all. SO2 Villanueva was the most junior in the platoon. But he didn't have that discipline, and I don't think he should have been in the back of a sniper rifle. Just anyone that he would see out, he would, like, try to engage him. Are you talking about... Civilians as well? So, yes, okay. That's, that definitely did. As they interview more and more SEALs from the platoon, investigators begin to home in on one day in particular. That day in May 2017, when word came over the radio that the Iraqi partner force had captured an ISIS fighter. SO1 delay. You know, that was like, holy shit, you know, we're gonna see an ISIS dude like in the face. Legitimately excited to see an ISIS guy up close, rather than through the scope of his sniper rifle. You know, and I, I was curious. I wanted to look into, you know, his eyes this close and see what, you know, what he was. But DeLay says Gallagher heard that same news 
and chimed in. Um, Eddie came over the radio and said, no one touch him, he's all mine. That is when the Iraqis rolled into the compound with the wounded fighter draped over the hood of the Humvee. They brought the guy in, and he didn't look like he was doing very well. Uh, Can you describe, like, how old this person appeared to be? 13, 14. Okay. And, you know, this guy was, you know, he, he was real thin. I'm a skinny guy, and he was, I mean, he was skinny. And they were, like, throwing water on his face, you know, trying to kind of revive him a little bit. I think it was a shrapnel wound. Lead Petty Officer Miller. This is actually Eddie's number two in the platoon. I was uh, walking behind the Humvee and around it. And uh, I look over and Eddie was there. And that brings us back to our freeze frame. That last image before it cuts off. SO1 Scott, a medic in the platoon, says he saw what happened next. It was unconscious kid. I could see a leg wound. He had like a chest tube in. And I think they did a crike while I was there. Okay. A crike. That's inserting a tube in the throat to create an airway. They, they kind of had everything under control. So I was kind of at the patient's head while they were working with him. So I was kind of there monitoring yeah. the patient. And that is when he says the situation turned. And then all of a sudden, maybe just start stabbing the dude. Did he say anything when he did this? He pulled out a knife and started stabbing him. One time, multiple times? It was probably two or three times. Okay. Was it like just a stab in or was it like a stab in and like turn it? I mean, it was just like a stab okay. about right here, just in a few times. So. Your point is like the base of your neck, right? Where yeah, base shoulder. of the neck, like going down into the neck lungs. The right or left side of the guy, you remember? The guy's right side. Is there any possible way that what he was doing could be interpreted as for medical purposes to help this guy? No. Stabbing that ISIS fighter a few hours earlier in combat, it would have been on the level. Killing ISIS was the reason they were there. But the minute he became a prisoner, he was off limits. It's not just breaking a Navy rule or a federal law. It's something that pretty much the entire world got together with the Geneva Conventions and agreed was wrong. I was kind of shocked at first. I kind of looked around, I was like, who else is seeing this? Lead Petty Officer Miller says he was seeing it. I see Eddie laying over on with the knife, sitting under his knife. If he were to say that somebody else stabbed him and he was, you just saw him pulling out the knife, is that possible? No, I saw him put the knife in the neck. Okay. That's without a doubt. And uh, um, there's nothing I could do at this point. And uh, so I left that scene and uh, just tried to like catch my breath and like try to like, just think about what just I just saw. And I remember thinking, like, man, Eddie, if he, if he knows it, I know this, you know? S.O. Scott again. And then, like, I kind of stayed at the dude's head and then, like, for a few minutes until he died. After the prisoner had died, the platoon is stopped down for a while, waiting to return to base. And that is when some of the SEALs begin taking photos with the body. Trophy photos. 
including one of Gallagher holding his knife in one hand and propping up the head of the corpse with the other. Then, group shots. It was like, hey, we're taking a group picture. Get in this fucking picture. SO1 delay. And, um, you know, at first I was just kind of act like I didn't hear it. And it was like, dude, get, come on, get in the fucking picture. And I was like, fuck no, I'm not getting in that picture. You know, so I stood in the back and... SO1 Miller again. I just felt like I didn't have a choice there. Miller was one of seven Alpha Platoon SEALs in that picture. The body of the young ISIS fighter propped up in the middle. And after that, I was like, we got, like, we need to go. We need to get, we need to leave. This is just turned into something that's just, like, we're, we're, This morning, a decorated Navy SEAL facing court-martial later today for the murder of an ISIS fighter in Iraq. He has been charged with four counts of violating military law, including premeditated murder. Cheered by supporters who called him a hero, but accused by the military of being a war criminal. Fourteen months after giving these statements to investigators, eight SEALs from Alpha Platoon would testify in court about what they say they saw. And Eddie Gallagher would be labeled a war criminal or a war hero, depending on what channel you watch. But the story would also be tossed onto an already considerable pile of Navy SEAL scandals over the last few years. In 2017, three SEALs are charged with war crimes for beating prisoners in Afghanistan. In 2018, two SEALs are charged with the murder of a Green Beret while on deployment in Mali. That same year, multiple Team 10 SEALs get kicked out for drugs, and an internal investigation shows rampant cocaine use by SEALs, snorting it, spiking drinks with it, and widespread gaming of the drug testing system. And even that Captain Phillips rescue on that container ship, three pirates, three bullets to the head in 2009. Five years later, on that same ship, two former SEALs turned private security are found dead, both from a heroin overdose. All these disparate events. But just to look at them as crimes or scandal or even just bad behavior, I think it's missing the point. I'm a fucking lion. I'm hunting wolves. Remember Dan? I'm not waiting for wolves to hunt me. I'm looking for that motherfucker and I'm daring him. Come down this hill. Dan was also on Team 7, but a decade earlier, before Gallagher, before the sewing circle. Dan's career as a team guy straddles a critical point. Before 9-11, and then after. When what I think is fair to call a sickness began. For the SEAL teams as an organization, and for many of the SEALs just as humans, in their own bodies and minds. Because of what they're asked to do, in the name of protecting the sheep. I had come in the teams to, to do all these missions and <laughs> didn't do shit. Dan earned his SEAL Trident in 1995, a time when the Cold War was just won and the relative peace was bad news for a SEAL looking for action. 
So I deployed the first two times to the Middle East on what's called an ARG Alpha. And ARG Alphas absolutely suck. You put a SEAL platoon on a ship and it floats for six months <laughs> to the Middle East and it does circles. With the SEALs at the ready to run missions at a moment's notice. So basically the team just floats around and waits. I did two missions and uh, one like semi-undercover, which is the lamest, stupidest thing in the world. He's bored silly. So Dan begins working toward a degree in finance. And in 2001, he starts to transition out of the teams. And then 9-11. It's like I'm laying in bed with my wife. And so I turned the TV on. And uh, right as I turned it on, I saw the second plane hit the tower. And we kind of laid there for a little while longer. And my wife said, you're not getting out, are you? I'm like, I'm not getting out. The American people understand that this is a different kind of war. This is a different type of war. There will be a conventional component to the, to the conflict, but much of what takes place will never make it onto the uh, TV screens. Much of the efforts that we're, we talked about in the Oval Office will be efforts that you'll never see until people are brought to justice. And where special operations was niche before, a break glass in case of emergency type force, in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, we would be breaking glass constantly. And I'm like, this is what I've been waiting for. We're going to go fucking jack some dudes up, you know? Dan joins Team 7, which still has that new team smell. It's one of two teams created after 9-11. Dan's first deployment with the team is to Baghdad in 2003. And their specialty? Kill capture missions. And your job was basically manhunting. Yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, we didn't go there for anything else, right? Yeah. So that was our focus. Capture them to get intel. Capture them to get intel. So we captured fuck, hundreds upon hundreds of people. How did that work? You were doing night raids? Correct. They keep vampire hours. They wake at one in the afternoon. They work out. They prep their vehicles and their equipment. And as soon as dinner was over, we'd have our PLO. PLO. That's platoon leader's orders. And so PLOs were the big mission brief is. And we go through the whole entire mission brief of who's the, here's the guy. Here's what we're looking for. This is what he's wearing. Technology gave the SEAL teams unheard of amounts of intel to pull this off. They would often know not just the guy's name and face, but his outfit that day, the layout of his house, who would be home. It's less like war and more like a SWAT team and sometimes a hit job. The platoon is ready for action just after midnight. In the movies, you'll see guys like, you know, play music and shit. Yeah. That's not the way it was for us. No? It was no nothing like, it was no like, okay, here's what we're going to do, guys. We just sit out there and we, no, nah, we just smoke cigars and bullshit. There was no speeches. As soon as you leave the gates, it's, it's, it's game on. Game on, Once meaning left, you guys aren't talking to each other like you're... You don't talk at all. There's no talking. The only talking going on is a navigator. Okay, we got a right turn coming up. Hey, we got a left turn coming up because you had everything so dialed in. As soon as my feet hit the ground, we get into formation and it was just, you know, you, you don't run. You're basically at a nice fast walk and get to the, get to where we're doing, put the breach on the door. And that was the last thing I would say is I'd grab my point man's head, put it to the ground, turning steel and charge. And then it's on. Turning steel. That's what you say before igniting a charge. Dan was trained as a breacher. Dan's role felt important unnecessary and he couldn't get enough have you ever jumped out of an airplane no 
or if you're going race car driving and you are driving hard and you're driving at 170 180 that feeling of oh fuck that's the only two feelings that i can ever give people of what it is to be in a seal convoy at night going to hit a target it's it, you mean you just you just see these fucking lasers going everywhere right and and, and it isn't it, you don't have a feeling of like oh man I, I i hope we don't get shot at you have a feeling like hey motherfucker i dare you to shoot at me you know we're not here to win we're here to fucking absolutely decimate you that's the feeling and you just crave it man it becomes it's just a drug But the ethics of it, they're debatable. Rounding up people in their homes for what would often end up being extrajudicial killing, it's a gray area. But in a war where the gray areas had already gotten extremely crowded, with CIA black sites and enhanced interrogation and imaginary WMDs. Dan's next deployment is to Mosul, but not 2017. This is our first time in Mosul, in 2004. And uh, Mosul was 10 times what Baghdad was. Um, we were, you know, we were doing eight missions a night in Mosul. It was crazy. Two years, five years, 10 years. The SEALs keep going, but mostly in secret. As far as the public is concerned, it's barely happening at all. Like we were so busy, we would have to take a day off. Like literally, we're going to take today off just to fucking decompress. That's how busy we were, right? This is uncharted territory. No one quite knows what the impact is going to be of fighting this kind of up-close and personal warfare for this long. You become a SEAL and you, you know you like to fight. Um, were you prepared for the killing part? Um, in your brain, you think you're prepared. In your brain, you're, you talk about, I'm going to kill motherfuckers. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Until the first time you kill somebody. Um, and then people congratulate you. And you smile and you go, yeah, that, yeah, fuck yeah. And you go in your room and you cry. The first time you kill somebody, it is shocking. It is terrible. It changes your life completely. It's something that I think about a lot now because the first man that I killed was an innocent man. When, it, um, when, when and where is this? This is in Iraq? This is Iraq 2003. It was another kill capture mission. When Dan blew open the door of a house where their target was hiding, and inside they found him, killed by Dan's breech blast. But they also found that man's 14-year-old son, standing in the middle of the room and staring right at Dan. Dan would find out the next day that their intelligence was bad. It was the wrong house altogether. And um, the guy died, and that's the image I remember, is that 14-year-old boy is, I just, I just killed your fucking dad. You know, and... That's that, that, that laid on my shoulders for a long time. Right. It was the only nightmares I ever had. Um, I actually had two nightmares from the war. That was one of them. And, uh, and my wife would always ask me, what are you dreaming of? Nothing. I just, you know, I was very callous and cold about it. And I drank anytime it did come up, I would just drink. And, um, I never, I never talked, I never talked about it. I didn't talk about it till November 8th of 2018 for the first time. He held on to it for 15 years. When I was in therapy, I, in, in the circle, I sat there and I, first time ever I said, this is, this, is what I, this is what I hate about myself. And it's the first time you talked about it. Yeah. It's like, it was just like opening a fucking can of Mountain Dew. It was shaken up and it just came out and I just 
I just was tired of not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. How many people do you know that, that died in the war? 27. 27. 27 is a terrible number. But it's not the only death statistic that Dan has had to watch creep up. You know, it's 27 in the war and then probably another 20 plus outside the war and growing, which is why I work so hard to get guys to therapy. When SEAL Team 6 killed Osama bin Laden in 2011. Now, one of my proudest possessions is the flag that the SEAL Team took with them on the mission to get bin Laden. The Navy SEALs came out of the shadows of war to become full-fledged heroes, hoisted up on shoulders as the answer to how war is fought in the 21st century. But the very next year, at the height of that fame, 23 American special operators committed suicide. This is active duty operators, not veterans. It's twice the rate of other military and three times greater than the population at large. And no one is quite sure why. Seals die at a very young age. You know, a lot of guys are dying in their 40s and 50s. You know, we went to those funerals and um, I swore I would never go to a funeral ever again. Why? <laughs> you make me cry. I just miss them so much. Yeah, I just miss them. Yeah. They're my bros. <laughs> you know, and fuck, man, we we did some we did some fucking just amazing stuff together. So that's why I don't want to go to those funerals because I choose to think of them as they're still here. Over the next six episodes, we are going to try to understand what happened to Alpha Platoon and to their chief, Eddie Gallagher, after that freeze frame, kneeling over that ISIS fighter. But for what it's worth, in that moment, he was on his eighth deployment. He had been fighting for 15 years. Gallagher would ultimately face seven charges, including for the murder of that prisoner and the attempted murder of unarmed civilians. But a lot of people get it wrong. Eddie Gallagher wasn't pardoned by Donald Trump. That's false. Gallagher went to trial. And the verdict was, in the order it was read, not guilty, not guilty, guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And on the way to that verdict, an honest-to-God, on-the-stand courtroom confession that magically both saved Eddie Gallagher and implicated him further at the same time. Not to mention public comments after the trial from Gallagher himself, where it feels like he is just daring us to believe that one or two of those not guilties got it wrong. And then there's this. Three weeks after that verdict, the head of Naval Special Warfare, Admiral Green, he sends out a memo. It's about the decline of good order and discipline and ethics breaches within the SEALs. The memo is short and to the point. And in the whole thing, there's only one sentence 
that has been written in bold and underscored for effect. Just four words saying simply, we have a problem. Next time on The Line. My name is Eddie Gallagher, uh, Bud's Class 252, Team 7 Alpha Platoon. And what was your role in the platoon? Uh, Platoon Chief. So there's this moment, um, there's this moment that's captured on helmet cam. Yeah. And and it's before everything in question happens, right? And you're leaning over this body of a, it seems like a very young ISIS soldier. Yeah. um, Surrounded by SEALs, surrounded by ERD, like... There's a lot going on. Um, Someone reaches up and turns the camera off. Yeah. And then everybody just wants to know everything in question is what happens next. Exactly. So what happens next? The Line is an Apple original podcast produced by Jigsaw Productions. Our producer is Lizzie Jacobs. Investigative producer Diane Hodson, Jody Avergan is our editor. Maria Luisa Tucker and David Iverson are our associate producers. Emily Van Blarkham is our production assistant. And Natsumi Ajisaka did our fact-checking. Rick Kwan is our engineer. And our original music is from Mark Orton and John Hancock, with additional music from Jeff Baxter and Eric Phillips. The Line is executive produced and written by me, Dan Taberski. For Jigsaw Productions, executive producers are Brad E. Bear, Stacey Offman, Richard Perillo, Joey Mara, and Alex Gibney. The supervising producer is Whitney Johnson. Our consulting producers are Annie Allen and Jeff Zimbalist. The team also includes Andrew Hafner, Jade Lewis, and Eric Mitten. Our interns are Olivia Butler, Zara Khan, Sarah Feynman, and Lily Levy Epstein. Legal services provided by J. Ward Brown and Ballard Spar. Thanks to the folks at Final Final V2. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And a special thank you to the special operators who shared their stories for this project. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please know that there's help. If you're in the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is open 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. For information in other countries, please search for your local crisis line.